Aaron and Esther Ballou have been leading worship here for months now. We so enjoy them and love what they have to add to what is happening here musically. Our teams all appreciate them. They all inspire each other. Aaron is bringing the word today. He was born in 1983 in Colorado. Shortly thereafter, his family moved to Costa Rica for missionaries for four years. Then they moved back to Colorado for 14 years. So as a teenager, he lived a typical life as a pastor's kid slash missionary's kid, a PKMK. His family moved to California when he was 18 years old to help start a church in the south of that state. He met a beautiful California girl named Esther, and he knew he just had to marry her. They have five children, ages 11, 9, 7, 3, and almost 1. They moved to East Texas in 2020, and then to Granbury in March of last year. So they've been here a year now. Aaron has been on various worship teams since he was an early teen, and one of his greatest joys in worshiping is with his wife, Esther. Can we show Aaron some love? Come out on, brother. So I want to first start off by telling a story. So a pastor was giving a children's message um, during church. So this is just before he would dismiss them, kind of like how um, Pastor Allen would, you know, we do the five-minute thing or sometimes we'll do things cater to the kids. So the pastor's like, hey, I want to talk to you about industry and preparation. So I'm going to tell you, um, I want you to tell me what I, I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe something, and I want you to tell me what I'm describing. So the children are anxious. They're like, oh, I want to I get this right. This thing lives in trees, and it eats nuts. No hands went up. The kids sat there silent, looking at each other. It's gray, has a long bushy tail. Children were looking at each other, saying nothing. It chatters and flips its tail when it's excited. Finally, little Timmy in the back. Uh, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> We always know at church, the answer is always Jesus, right? It's true. It's true. So this morning, I want to talk to you about honoring identity. So Pastor Allen, over the past several months, the beginning of this year, has been talking about honoring different things. And so he asked me to speak on honoring identity. So in order to do that, we need to look at the definition, the fact of being who or what a person or thing is, or it's also the characteristics determining who or, or what a person or thing is. So, let me ask you, who are you? How do you view yourself? Do you know how God sees you? I want to take you on a journey today to maybe answer some of those questions. We as humans process information from various influence. It could be family, it could be friends, it could be school, our acquaintances, it could even be a religion. Some of you may have been race Catholic or Baptist or Methodist, whatever it is. Uh, it could be culture, could be media. These influences shape our beliefs about how the world works and how we fit in the world. These beliefs form our identity and they become our reality. We filter our experiences to fit our story about who we are. So I'm going to tell you my story. So who am I? From what I remember of my childhood, it was pretty good. I had a great childhood. I loved it. I had many great friends. I had many adventures. I mean, I was a missionary four years in Costa Rica as a little kid. That's pretty cool. I felt loved by my father and mother. Our family never lacked anything. I didn't have any traumatic experiences. I really can't complain too much about my upbringing. I grew up in church my whole life. My school was at the church. My friends were at the church. My parents worked at the church. My church was at the church. <laughs> I have a lot of fond memories of that building. That building was awesome. It was an old cattle. It's an awesome building. Anyways, my parents were missionaries and pastors. That makes me a PK, MK, right? So 
I also want to add to that, almost everybody has a fear of man. But for me, people-pleasing hit me a little bit harder than probably most. And being a pastor's kid made that struggle extra challenging. So one of the hardest parts about being a pastor's kid is the way that everybody treats you. Growing up, you're a normal kid. And then all of a sudden, when they find out you're the pastor's kid, those expectations change. You're known as the pastor's son, and everybody starts treating you differently than you did beforehand. This notion that pastor's children need to be perfect and spotless was unhealthy, and it can have many negative effects on the kids as they grow up. There are so many weighty expectations placed over the children of pastors, and when they don't achieve them, it can bring forth many emotional issues because the kids think that they either let their parents down or they let people in the congregation down. Of course, that's not the case, but it is still unfair to think of pastor's kids in such high esteem. They are just that. They're kids. They should be free to live and make mistakes while still being able to be corrected. Okay, I'm getting off that soapbox. <laughs> Part of my identity is that I'm Pastor David's son, and I'm also Pastor Jackie's son. My parents are some of the most amazing people on the planet. If we were to go back and look at all the churches and areas where my parents have been, that's Montana, Colorado, Virginia, um, Costa Rica, you will see people everywhere that had their lives impacted by Christ through them. I had a great example to follow. I see the impact that they've had everywhere they go, and I love being their son. I love you, Mom. Love you too, Dad. I know you're going to watch this later. The thing that was a struggle for me for quite some time was that I was almost never known as Aaron. I was known as Pastor David's son. I was Pastor Jackie's son. As soon as that label was placed on me, I then felt the pressure of having to live up to those expectations of being a pastor's kid. There was always a feeling of being in a glass house, and everything I did or said was on display to be judged or assessed. I wanted people to know me for me, not because my parents were pastors. I wanted people to introduce me to others as simply... Aaron, my identity was wrapped up in how people saw me. I actually have kind of a funny story. When I was 12 or 13, I went to uh, this like speaking convention. There was going to be a bunch of college athletes, professional athletes that were going to be speaking at this engagement. And so beforehand, you can kind of intermingle with the people there, uh, some of the ce celebrities, we'll just call them that, the athletes. And I remember going up to one of them. He was like six foot six, 275 pounds of pure muscle. He was on the Colorado Buffaloes college football team. And I go up to him, and he goes, hey, Aaron, how are you doing? How do you know my name? I was like, He's like, well, you know, I just know. It's kind of something along those lines. I was ecstatic. This guy who could potentially play in the NFL knows my name. I was like, that's awesome. I was on cloud nine until I got home. When I started getting ready for bed, I took off my jacket, and there was a sticker on that jacket. <laughs> what do you think that sticker said? It said, hello, my name is Aaron. I, had, I completely forgot that when you got there and you signed in, you felt put your name on. It was my handwriting. It wasn't somebody else. It was my handwriting. I stuck it on my jacket, and there you go. I was crushed. I was like, man, the guy didn't really know my name. Um, so now when I see kids with their sticker, I'm like, they ask me, how'd you know my name? It's happened to me a couple times. I'm like, oh, you have a name tag. So um, this label of being simply Aaron or a pastor's kid played into the struggle I had with the fear of man. So I've struggled with that, that fear of man, as long as I can remember being a PK and having a people-pleaser mentality made things even harder for me. The pressure of having someone always watching exacerbated my tendency to people-please. If I didn't meet the expectations of others, I felt they wouldn't like me or they would think I was a bad person. This didn't just impact me during my childhood years. This is something I struggled with up into my early 30s. I did not feel free to be me I was a slave to my perception of what people wanted me to be. I also had this wrong belief that if I wasn't serving in church or ministry of some sort, 
that my relationship with God was poor and I was backslidden. There was always someone who needed me to serve. There was always, there's always going to be a need of the church. Um, and I didn't want them to not like me. So what do you think I did? I served. Yeah, serve, 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 serve. I've almost been part of a worship team pretty much my whole life, whether that was youth team or the main worship team. I was an usher. I was a youth pastor on two different occasions. Uh, I was the sound man. I ran the multimedia department. I was a videographer. I was a paid staff video editor who would send and edit the videos and send them to our local TV station. Um, I worked in the children's church. I was an admin for our church Facebook page. I worked in the nursery I even served on the board of one of my churches. On many occasions, I would get burned out because my motive for, for serving was rooted in the wrong thing. So what do you think I did when I'd get burned out? I'd stop serving. But when I wasn't serving, my relationship with God, or what I thought my relationship with God was now impacted, so what do you think I did? Started serving again. As you can see, I created a vicious cycle of confusion and resentment. I wanted to receive the accolades for what I was doing, even though my heart wasn't always in it. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who God said I was. My identity was wrapped up in lies. The lies I believed about my identity made it like I was a big ship with its sails down in the middle of an ocean with only one oar. You're not going anywhere. And I want to talk about those lies here in just a few minutes. Now, I want to ask you this question. Who are you? Some of you may have been a PK like me or have a similar story to mine. Some of you may be a middle child. You may be the firstborn of 11. You may be an only child. You may be the baby of the family. Some of you may have been orphaned or ran away from home at a young age some of you have come from a home with an overprotective mother or father. Some of you may have come from a home where your parents didn't protect you. Some of you may have parents that were or are married for 40 plus years. Some of you may have come from a broken family or had abusive parents or relatives. Some of you have been divorced, some more than once. Some may not even be married to your current partner. Some of you have had everything you've ever wanted. Some of you have never had enough or almost never had enough. Some of you have been successful in business and careers. Some of you haven't even been able to find a good job. Every person in this room has a story. Every story is different. These stories have led you to where you are today. As I said earlier, we filter those experiences to fit our story about who we are. However, your story does not define who you truly are. How many of you have seen The Lion King? How many of you have not seen The Lion King? I'm just curious. Okay, a couple people. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a brief synopsis of The Lion King. So Lion King was a Disney cartoon movie that came out in the 90s. I was, you know, I was in my teens, probably early teens. Lion King's a story of a lion, Simba. Here's Simba here. He is born to King Mufasa of the Pride Lands. While most movies portray fathers as ignorant, absent, incompetent, abusive, fearful, and unloving, the Lion King portrays Mufasa as a just, wise, virtuous, and loving father. From a young age, Simba wanted to be like his father. His father's brave, and in one scene, Simba actually disobeys his father trying to show off for a girl lion to show how brave he is. Simba gets in trouble. Mufasa takes Simba aside and educates him on what it truly means to be brave. As Mufasa is reprimanding Simba for his disobedient, he doesn't withdraw his love. He uses it as an opportunity to teach and to bond with his son. Simba's journey is influenced by the heroic and wise example that Mufasa sets for him as father and king. However, there's a jealous uncle, Uncle Scar, lurking in the background, who actually lost his place as the next one in line for the king when Simba was born. A trap is set by Scar to usurp Mufasa's throne that ends up in Mufasa saving Simba's life at the expense of his own. 
Scar arrives at the scene of Mufasa's, de- Mufasa's death and convinces Simba that the reason Mufasa is dead because of something that Simba did. Simba runs away at the advice of his evil uncle, and we see Simba quickly lose his sense of identity. That is until a meerkat and a warthog show up and establish themselves as new father figures in Simba's life. This is Timon and Pumbaa. They give terrible advice to Simba and teach him akuna matata, which means no worries. This way of life says, forget your problems, enjoy yourself, live the great life with no rules or responsibilities. Akuna matata is so appealing because it's fun and easy and comes with no strings attached. This is all in stark contrast to what Mufasa tried to ingrain in Simba. As Simba walks into his new way of life, we see him transition from a child to an adult. His diet changes from meat to grubs, acts as a symbol of what happens to him. He forgets who he is and starts to live as someone less than who he is called to be. He settled for mediocrity. I'll get to the rest of the Lion King shortly. I mentioned earlier that you all have experiences that have shaped how you respond to things. Some experiences have led you to where you are today. Just as Simba had a horrible experience as a kid, his life has been hijacked by something that on the surface seems great, but is keeping him from his greater calling. Is there an akuna matata that is hijacking your calling? What lies are you believing that are keeping you from living in true freedom and fullness? Knowing your identity in Christ affects the way you think and behave. On the flip side of that, if you don't know who you are in Christ, it will affect your thinking and behavior. In Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Paul writes to remind the Galatians that they are no longer slaves, but sons in Christ Jesus. As sons, their position and authority is different from slaves. A slave has a different mindset and status than a son, from a, from, from a son. A son is an heir to the throne. We can also look at Gideon in the Old Testament. Gideon was hiding in a great, great press. He was scared. His attitude changed once the angel of the Lord God called him, and called him a mighty man of valor and urged him to go in his strength. Before that, he thought he was a weakling. He lived in fear of the Midianites, but the angel made him realize that his little strength amounted to much in God. I want to show you three lies that we believe about our identity that keep us living in a place of slavery. And I also want to show you three truths about your identity so we can live from a position of authority as an heir to the throne. So, lie number one, I am what I have. You might say, I was born in the greatest nation in the world. I have great parents. I have great kids. I have great grandkids. Not great, great grandkids. You know what I'm saying, right? Great, great grandkids. Yeah. I have a great education. I have a great job. I am in good health. I'm smart, I'm pretty, or I'm good-looking, I have awesome friends, I have a nice house, I have a nice car, I have the latest, greatest cell phone. Some people base their entire identities based on what they have. You may be be playing Keeping Up with the Joneses because you want to appear a certain way to the world around you. Maybe you have all the name-brand clothing. You want a Rolex instead of a Timex. We want the status symbols to show that we have it all together. But what happens as soon as we lose any of it? Let's say a family member dies or your health starts to fade or you lose your house in a tornado or your car gets destroyed by a hailstorm, or you accidentally drop your phone and the screen shatters into a million pieces. You may slip into inner darkness. There's a quote from German psychologist Eric Fromm and he said, if I am what I have and if, I ha- if what I have is lost, who then am I? Nobody but a defeated, deflated, pathetic testimony to a wrong way of living. The other side to this lie of I am what I have is you may say, my parents were not that great. My kids won't talk to me. My grandkids don't want anything to do with me. I don't have a good job. My health stinks. My nose is too big. Or I'm not good looking enough. My friends are all leaving me. My house is falling apart. My car is barely drivable. My phone is over six years old and it won't hold a battery charge. Why do all my friends have nice things? Your self-esteem may be in the dumps and you might say something like, 
I don't deserve to have nice things, or I'm not worthy of anyone's time. I'm not enough. I don't deserve to receive this. Some people build up their identity on the lie that they are nothing because they don't have nice things, or they have been dealt a bad hand. They stick themselves in a box of perpetual wallowing. Your identity is not based on what you have or don't have. Truth number one, I am enough. Let's take a look at Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. It's a little bit small, I'm sorry. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You were designed with intention. In the book Encounter by Sean Bowles, I don't know if you, anybody knows who Sean Bowles is, he tells of a vision that he had about God's original design. And this is what Sean writes. God allowed me to see the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sitting around a table. Jesus was holding something almost like a 3D hologram in his hand, and it was in the shape of a human being. He said, look at this one. Can you imagine what she will do when she discovers what we have put inside of her? Isn't she awesome? He slammed the other table on the, uh, his other hand on the table and jumped up. The father laughed a bellowing laugh. It wasn't like Santa's laugh. It was beyond jolly. He found so much joy in Jesus' fascination and love for this human. The father said, you've said that about all of them. Behind the father and Jesus were billions of these 3D images of humans hanging by beautiful strings. If you tried to follow those strings, those strings were intermeshed with the Father's heart. They were part of him, found in the deepest part of his core. The holograms were brilliant with light. Jesus grabbed another and held it up among the three of them, and they all communed and imagined and planned over the person. They planned the person's identity, joy, gender, and physical form, the individual's relationship capacity, his or her talents, skills, imagination, and dream life, and potential. So much care and creative expression went into the process. Then the three of them carefully installed something of their own will and imagination into the person. There it is, Jesus grinned. The father let his hand wander over the heart of the person who wasn't alive yet, but was fully alive in his imagination. Each of these 3D images had the Godhead's own eternity go into their creative process. They were formed in the imagination of God and brought into their potential existence. As they all passed around the person they were working on, you could see their imagination, dreams, and desires carefully being wired into the DNA of the person they held. Ooh, my favorite part, Jesus said uh, over the one they were working on. They were writing into the very nature of the person, how she would receive and express love. She will love the way we love. And as Jesus said that, he breathed his nature into the fabric of her natural and spiritual being. What a beautiful picture. Each one of us is one of those 3D images. The Godhead sat there and put that creative process in each one of you. You are more than enough in his image. Line number two. I am what I do. When you do good things or when you have some success in life, you feel pretty good about yourself. Or if you're a little bit older, uh, you may say something like, well, I can't do much anymore, but look at my trophies. Look, I did a lot of good things in my life. Look at my children. Look at my grandchildren. I did something good. Some people build up their identities on their accomplishments. They have a shrine to themselves in their house of all their successes. It could be trophy days of the glory days in high school or college. It could be the massive family photo in the hallway showing all the kids and grandkids. But when those successes fail, they may start feeling a little low or maybe depressed. On the flip side, some people build up their identity on their lack of accomplishments. 
they didn't have a good job or they were not good at sports and didn't get any trophies except the participation kind. Maybe they couldn't have kids. Some people may find a little bit of success, but then they experience imposter syndrome. Anybody ever experienced that? Which is defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. Many question whether they are deserving of accolades. What you need to do is to be in connection with the Father. Truth number two, what I do flows out of who I am. So back in the book uh, that Sean Bowles, uh, in the book Encounter, in that same chapter, he goes on to explain that there's a particular hologram. It was a man who had the capacity for partnering in marriage, being a father, being a leader, and excelling with these incredible gifts God was wrapping around his identity. The hologram was born to a mother who loved him and a father who was detached. He had a hard upbringing, living in total poverty with uneducated parents who ended up divorced. He, however, had a strategic mind that God put inside of him, and he was always looking for ways to become better. He married a woman, and she was the catalyst for his completeness, but he never loved her as much as he loved his success. And himself. He followed his entrepreneurial dreams of success. He was using what was put inside of him, that inner glory of God's nature, to try and fulfill an identity without connection to the Creator. He will work himself to the death of all relationships, even with the children he will have with his second wife. Three marriages, several children who desperately wanted to be loved by him, but were sacrificed at the altar of ambition and success that was valued only by the world around him. But heaven was hovering over him, still pregnant with God's original dream, still holding him to that. Heaven was trying to interject opportunities for him to slow down and see Jesus. He grew old and slightly bitter, but one of his grandchildren had found Jesus and became a minister. They were in town to visit him. The grandson was so happy and so full of life, even though he didn't have the success and the, and the ambition that defined the man's success and glory. He saw life that was truly life, but he felt too old to apprehend it. He became hopeless and complacent. The grandson invited him to a church meeting on their last day in town. The man ends up going to the church, has an encounter at the meeting, and a light bulb comes on inside the man, inviting him to see that he still had time to experience love and joy in his life, and that God had given the gift of family if he would just engage. That thread of that hologram of the man was still linked to the father's heart. What the man did on his own was nothing in comparison to the fully reintegrated life of love and connection to the father. The incredible part of that vision is actually years later, Sean Bowles was speaking at a church somewhere and he had a prophetic um, word for a man in the, the congregation. It was the same man in that vision. His story was exactly the same. The man ended up coming to Christ that evening. It's awesome. You are meant to be glorious. You were created to be in community with him. So often we try to do things in our own power. But we end up like the bitter old man who wasn't living out of who he was designed to be. It is impossible to know who we are without knowing who God is. As we see with the man in the story, there were things that he did on his own, and he achieved success, but he was still unhappy. He was falling short of who God created him to be. He would try to fulfill his identity without that connection to the Father. I am not what I do, but rather what I do flows out of who I am. For example, you are not generous because you give. You give because you are generous. That action of giving comes from who you are. You can give for the right reasons or give for the wrong reasons. That action doesn't change who you are. Some make the act of doing about them. Doing the actions is not going to make you a good person. You do them because you are good. The action doesn't affect your identity one way or another. On the flip side, if you act incorrectly, maybe you have a weak moment and yell at your kids or your spouse, or you punch somebody, it doesn't make you a bad person. Your identity doesn't change. So why are you acting like that? 
What that is comes from a place of woundedness or a lie you may be believing. It reveals that you're believing a lie about yourself, but it is not who you are. We often struggle to change our behavior without treating the root of the problem. There's no secret formula to rid us of our symptoms. We have to go to the Holy Spirit with our issues. He needs to be involved in the process of getting to the root. Jesus came to heal the broken. He came to set the captives free. We're all broken in certain areas, and Jesus came to fix the woundedness of our souls, but we must involve him in the process. When we try to do things on our, work, on our own, it may work for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long. When our life becomes all about him, everything starts to fall into place. The right actions will begin to flow out of us, not because we try to do good, but because we are. In Romans 8, 37 through 39, it says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have your story, and it's okay to not like parts of that story, but your connection to the Father is so important. We are victorious when we stay in that connection with him. Lie number three, I am what people say or think about me. We place so much importance on what people say about us. If people speak well about us, we can walk around freely, maybe strut a little bit. You feel pretty good, but when someone starts talking behind your back or says neg negative things about you, you may feel pretty sad. You can have 100 people say nice things about you and one person say negative things, and what are you going to be thinking about? That one person who said the negative thing. You completely ignore the 100 nice things that were said about you. We focus all our attention on that one person. If somebody says something negative about you in the morning, you're just, maybe you show up at your office, what does that do to the rest of your day? It ruins your mood, and sometimes you may not even recover until the next day, until you can sleep it off. Who you surround yourself with can also have an impact on your identity. Let's go back to Timon and Pumbaa from The Lion King. Simba's a lion. What does the lion eat? What are Timon and Pumbaa? Meat, right? Timon and Pumbaa have convinced Simba to eat bugs, slugs, and grubs. They trained Simba the Akuna Matata way to not have meat on the menu. The friends were saving their necks at the expense of Simba's identity. You may have friends around you who are also using you to benefit themselves and cause you to not live out who you are. You could also have a family member like Uncle Scar who comes in to break down your security and identity. Some of you may have family members who speak against you and put you down. Or you may have a fear of man. Maybe you're like me and always tried to be liked by everyone. I would compromise who I was in order to please the people around me. I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to upset people. If I knew someone was a Whataburger fan, and they asked me if I liked In-N-Out or Whataburger better, I might hem or haw my way out saying, they're different, or you can't compare these two, or I like both the same. When inside, I know that In-N-Out is way better. <laughs> But, heresy, but I tell the Whataburger fan what he wants to hear. I would lie to myself for, be, for the sake of being liked by that person. I was fake, and I knew I was being fake. But my false sense of identity was placed on what people thought of me. This lie can be very painful, but the truth will set you free. Truth number three I am who God says that I am. I am a child of God. All throughout the Bible, there are references to God, who's, to who God says we are. We are his beloved. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are chosen. We are a new creation. We are redeemed. We are light, just to name a few. We are children of God. There are at least 100 references to being called the child of God in the Bible. You can preach a year-long series on being called a child of God. But there's one scripture I want to focus on, and that's in Romans 8. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with it, our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul here is speaking to the Romans. In Roman culture, adoption was a very common practice. Paul knew that his message of adoption would get across to the Roman church. The adopted son was granted all the privileges of a natural-born son, including the inheritance rights. The adopted son became the heir to the father's estate. Every one of you have been called out of that slavery and into the spirit of adoption. So let's look at what an heir is. An heir is a person inheriting and continuing the legacy of a predecessor. An heir is also someone who has entered partially into the possession of their inheritance. Their identity becomes solidified in knowing who they are. A prince, when he is old enough, will begin to lord over parts of his his inheritance. Everything is the king's, but the prince shares in what is his. When we grow in our identity in Christ, we are given a taste of his kingdom. You were born for such a time as this. You were made to shake history. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. You are a child of God. When you walk in that love that he has for you, you begin to walk out your identity. You carry yourself with a little swagger. Not a prideful swagger, but confidence in who you are. You can have everyone around you sing your praises, or everyone around you could ridicule you. The opinion of others doesn't matter anymore when you focus on the opinion of your father. So, recap, lies about your identity. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others say or think about me. If we live out our identity based on these lies, you see we go through these crazy ups and downs. The color's not the greatest. Hopefully you can see that. When everything's going well, we're up at the top. We have these nice things. We feel ecstatic. Our kids are talking to us. Our grandkids want to visit us. Or... Maybe your nice things are gone. Your kids won't talk to you anymore. Your health is fading. Maybe you've gotten older, so you're unable to do some of those things that made you feel good about yourself. Now you're way down here, living from a place of low self-esteem or low confidence. You see our lives cycling an up-and-down pattern, and now we're in survival mode trying to stay above that red line, trying to hold on to our good name, trying to hold on to our property. This cycle of ups and downs is not who you are. We need to grab a hold of the truths of who God says we are in order to break the cycle. I want to share how I discovered my true identity and began to live out the truths that I just mentioned. Something in my mentality began to shift in my 20s, my late 20s, when my first child was born. When my daughter Abigail was born, I looked at this little child in the hospital with the blanket and the little beanie on and just felt this unexplainable love. You don't know anything about this child, only that you would do anything for her, to protect her, to cherish her, to love her, and to be her hero. The same is true for my four other kids. Nothing my kids can do will change the love I have for them. I will not love them more if they do something nice for me or behave a certain way. I will not love them less if they do something that would be disappointing. God looks at you and me the same way. His love for us far exceeds the love we have for our kids. We are his kids. He created us. He loves us so much. That realization of the father's love changed my way of thinking. I didn't need to serve at church in order to get approval. My relationship with God was not based on what I did. I just needed to connect with him. I didn't need to strive for any of it. 
Once I understood that love, I began to experience the freedom. It wasn't something that happened overnight, though. I had years of believing lies that needed to be wiped out with the truth of who God said I was. There are still Akuna Matata moments today that creep up. And it takes me being intentional with the Father and reconnecting with the truth of who he says I am to snap out of it. For me, I always had a hard time saying no. I actually had a boss that I would take on too many things because it trickled in my outside in the secular world when I was working. And she encouraged me. She's like, you have to say no. She actually bought me those little red buttons when you press it, it makes, makes a noise. And there was like, I think, 10 different ways to say no. And she encouraged me to start saying no. And then when I felt empowered, I was actually free to do things a little bit more. And so now with this freedom, I'm free to say no, and I'm also free to say yes. When I serve on the worship team or stand on the stage, I do it from a place of freedom. I do it because I want to do it, not because I have to get any of your approval. When you know the truth of who you are and you walk in that identity, you can have good things or bad things happen, but your identity is not shaken. Instead of being in survival mode, you are in rest mode. And there's so much freedom in that. I want to look at a perfect example of someone who knew who he was in the Bible. Let's look at Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been fasting the whole time. And who shows up? The stinking devil shows up. The devil shows up and tells Jesus to turn these stones into bread and show that you can do something. That's lie number two. Jump from the temple and the angels will catch you and people will see these things and speak well about you. That's lie number three. The devil takes him to a high mountain and offers him all the kingdoms of the world. The devil offers him all the possessions of the world and then he will be loved. Lie number one. But I want you to see something. What happened to Jesus just before he went into the wilderness? He got baptized. What happens when he got baptized? Jesus gets out of the water. Heaven's opened up. And the voice says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And I want to break that down a little bit more. This is my son. This speaks to Jesus' identity. This speaks to his authority. Whom I love. Jesus had not done any miracles at this point. He still doesn't have any disciples following him. This is Jesus just as he is. The love that God has for his son is not based on what Jesus has done or is going to do. With him I am well pleased. We see that God thinks very highly of Jesus. It is not based on performance or what he possesses. Jesus lives from the approval of his father. He stays connected to his father all the time. You see it several times in the Bible. Jesus withdrew from the crowds to go talk with God. Jesus knew who he was. He entered that wilderness with those words still ringing in his ears. It says in Mark 1 that Jesus was with the wild animals. How many of you have ever gone camping and you hear the raccoons or coyotes or something out there? Did you get some sleep? Maybe. Maybe you can sleep through anything, but maybe you can't sleep. So I imagine Jesus is in the wilderness, probably really exhausted. He hasn't eaten anything. And he's at the lowest of lows. But he entered that wilderness with the words of his father. The devil came to Jesus with an easy out. He approached Jesus with an akuna matata um, out. The devil knew the right buttons to push, but Jesus stood firm in the truth of who he was. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The rest is history. I want to look at 1 John 3, 1 again. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. If you are repeating behaviors or you're seeing this cycle of ups and downs, you need to think about the root cause of it. There is a lie behind it and it's keeping you from experiencing the truth about who you are. If you are trying in your own strength, you're going to be spinning your wheels for a long time. 
You need to understand the truth about who you are. You need to follow God to transform you with that truth. You need to remember who you are. And those new behaviors will naturally flow out of who you are. Knowing your God-given identity gives you confidence, self-esteem, and awareness. Knowing who you are and whose you are changes everything. If you knew that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that would change the way that you view yourself. Let's go back to the Lion King. Simba is the rightful heir to the kingdom. He became a slave to fear, worry, and shame. A lion that was supposed to lead his pride and protect all the other animals in the pride land is nothing but a helpless kitty cat. Simba was supposed to be eating meat and dining on the best the land had to offer and instead was eating bugs from under logs with a pig and a groundhog. Simba didn't even remember that he was a lion. He was just another creature living the good life. After Simba's discovered to be alive by his childhood friend Nala, that's the one he actually tried to show off for, um, show off he's brave, she tries to convince him to come back and save the kingdom from his uncle Scar. The animals are all starving and there's no hope for the future. Simba, though, can't be persuaded to come back because of all of his shame and guilt. And he distances himself from Nala, from his friend. A little bit later, with the help of a baboon, Simba has an encounter with his father and realizes the life he has been living is not what he has been called to. Simba is reminded of his identity as the son and rightful king. He rushes back to the pride lands with his rediscovered identity and confronts his past. He arises victorious as the rightful king and restores peace and balance. <laughs> Creepy little monkey. Will you stop following me? <laughs> who are you? The question is, who are you? <sighs> I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. Uh, enough already. What is that supposed to mean, anyway? It means you're a baboon. And I'm not. <laughs> I think you're a little confused. Wrong. I'm not the one who's confused. You don't even know who you are. Oh, and I suppose you know. Sure do. You're Mufasa's boy. <gasps> Bye. Hey, wait! You knew my father? Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope, wrong again. <laughs> He's alive, and I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki, he knows the way. Come on. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. forgotten me.
No. How could I? You have forgotten who you are, and so forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. No, please, don't leave me. Father. Some of you in this room need to reclaim your identity. There are years of lies that you may have believed. There are things that happened to you that have distracted you from who you are called to be. You are sons and daughters of God the Father made in his image and likeness. He's calling out to you saying, remember who you are. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. And who you say we are. You are such a good father. And there's nothing I need to do to earn that love. And Lord, for the people in this room right now who've dealt with these lies, who've been living with these lies, whether they're 90 years old or whether they're 2 years old, Father, you can come in and reveal to them who they are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron. Man, he was prepared, wasn't he? That's awesome. (laughs) Hallelujah. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, the peace that passes understanding, the peace that is not based upon compromise or circumstances, but on the conquest of the Son of God. Thank you, Lord. We pray you'd bless and keep us, use us mightily for your glory. Lord, we recognize now the service begins. We go out, make this a launching pad of ministry. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go get them, tigers.